Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Civil War. As King Charles took the throne, there was at first a sense that reconciliation with Parliament was now possible. King Charles had even served for a short time within the House of Lords. But King Charles gave reconciliation no opportunity. He continued the expansion of his kingly powers and the Catholic practices within the Church of England. These actions started breaking apart the cohesion of English society. England started leaking its people. Religious separatists were now leaving for Holland. Thousands of Puritans had just left for New England. And then it would go from bad to worse as King Charles compiled a list of foreign relation disasters. Charles married a Catholic queen of France. He publicly told his subjects that this would not affect his approach with Catholics in England. But just as the English conspirators feared, King Charles had secretly agreed to lax the enforcement of laws against Catholics in England. And after the marriage took place, France reneged agreements with the English on army passage through France, leaving an English army to winter on boats only designed for channel passage. Half the soldiers died to disease while on those boats. The king looked apathetic or uncaring. Either way, the seeds of discontent were planted. Charles then advanced high priests to the Catholic Church that were sympathetic to Arminian views of Christianity, that redemption through Christ was revocable. This directly opposed the Puritan view that achieving redemption was preordained. He also used the Church of England to reform worship to be even more Catholic in practice, mandating the use of rails to separate clergy from congregation in all English churches. It might seem like a simple thing, but a rail was a powerful metaphorical symbol of the difference between Protestants and Catholics. For Protestants, there was no guardrail to your relationship with God. Relationships with God were direct and intimate. A rail forced Puritans to worship in a way they thought was blasphemous, seeding further resentments against the crown. King Charles's mandates had went much further than his father, King James, had required, and devout Protestants of all types of denominations started seeing these religious issues as not just local English disputes, but in a broader conspiratorial Christian world of Catholic conspiracies. They also saw the defeats of Protestant kingdoms in mainland Europe and saw all of this as part of a bigger, grand conspiracy that drifted Europe into Catholic hegemony once again, which could only end with the reinstatement of Catholicism in England. The most radical English Protestants grew increasingly uneasy with any compromise of faith that was being asked of them, no matter how small. These radicals often got derided as Puritans. These dual issues of monarchical authority and religion had now aligned into one existential battle over English religion, faith, and liberty. In a patriotic cry that England would repeat in its history, these dissenters started viewing their fight as a fight for the salvation of all Europe, that their lone island was the last battleground of liberty for all people. Warning and rhetoric that we, the English, are the last monarchy that holds rights and constitutions. Let us not perish now or the world will fall back into absolutist heretical monarchies. All Europe would fall back into an age of darkness. 
Charles had built such distrust now in England that Parliament would act in defiance of their king by only giving him rights to tonnage and poundage for one year. Tonnage and poundage is in essence a tariff fee on weights of goods that are imported and exported. For two centuries, Parliament had given the kings of England a lifetime grant to the revenue on tonnage and poundage to cover ordinary governmental function. Instead of directly confronting this, King Charles, like his father, would try first to work around Parliament. He asked for benevolences, voluntary gifts to the king. It yielded little. The king's privy council called for forced loans. Hundreds of gentry refused to pay these. King Charles then imprisoned 70 of the most prominent refusers. He imprisoned them with no stated charges, out of fear that if charged, the courts hearing the cases would declare these forced loans to be illegal. We have to remember, in this era, without charges, you just sat in prison in purgatory. Courts had no ability to hear your case unless they were hearing charges. This sudden string of chargeless imprisonment rocked the gentry, a class in England which normally was very supportive of the king. King Charles, still without money, ordered his army to enforce martial law on towns so that he could save money by demanding the townspeople house and feed his soldiers. Of course, this was done completely at the cost of the landowners. England had long prided itself with the invention of Magna Carta, Magna Carta was not a constitution like we think today. It was, it was more of a set of edicts agreed to by kings of old, who had all agreed to what laws and rights the people of England had. King Charles was violating Magna Carta by imprisoning the gentry without cause, taxation without authority of parliament, and by imposition of martial law in peacetime. Then... King Charles asked for a 500,000 pound taxation for a new military expedition. Anyone and everyone in England who might have been willing to lend money had already been tapped out. With no takers, King Charles then tried to borrow money from the city of London itself, even though he already owed them more than 300,000 pounds, and the city refused him. In 1628, with reluctance, but in desperation for money, King Charles called another parliament. Every refuser of the king's forced loan that ran for parliament won their election. Crown supporters, shall we say, fared very poorly. This would be a very hostile parliament from the start. And almost everyone in that parliament viewed this as a crisis of the parliamentary system. This parliament would decide if English freedom would live or die. Parliament argued that 30 kings within England had accepted Magna Carta, but King Charles had violated the wisdom of all of his predecessors. Parliament would vote for enough money for the basic running of the government and funding of the war in Europe, but they would not pass any other taxation until the grievances of English rights within Magna Carta got addressed. The core of the political conflict was whether the king was bound by the law that is, the king was subject to laws, or if the king was above the law, having the natural and absolute power of the law. Cook, back again from imprisonment, would now draw the logical argument for English rights. And this argument is the foundational logic that would become in America what we call inalienable rights. Cook reasoned that Magna Carta enshrines common law, property law, and inheritance law. Common law 
is subject to even kings. Everyone agreed to this. So he continued his argument. These rights under debate today are the inheritance of a great accomplishment of England. They are something concrete, and most importantly, they are owned. These rights belong to the heirs of England. And just as with issues of common law, the king cannot intervene to revoke rightfully owned property without courts of law. So the king cannot revoke rights inherited without the involvement of English courts. He finished that property law has always been a higher, more protected form of constitutional law since Magna Carta. Cook then turned his argument toward the king, asking the members of the House of Lords a simple question. Shall I be the owner of my own house, the owner of my own possessions, yet not be the owner of my own rights? It would be ridiculous to require due process of law before any property can be taken from me yet not require due process of law before the king can seize my very person and rights. Rights are the greatest inheritance a man has, because all other inheritance are secondary to the possession of his person. If we place the king above the law, what do we say about our liberties? Cook's arguments swirled around Parliament for months, debate raged, and then the king offered, to give his royal word that he will enforce and abide by Magna Carta. Cook demanded that the king acknowledge English rights and liberty in a legislative way, by signing the Petition of Rights to Due Process. Parliament would not settle for the king's general acceptance of those rights. The House of Commons passed the Petition of Rights unanimously, but the House of Lords wanted to add the phrase, We leave your majesty's rights as sovereign translate to today, the king is above this and every law. The simple addition would undercut the entire point of the king being under the law. Commons reacted to this alteration with outright fury and contempt. Cook responded famously that Magna Carta is such a fellow as he will have no sovereign. If we grant this by implication, then we grant that a sovereign is always above our laws chastised the House of Lords past the Petition of Right. But for it to have force, the king himself would have to sign it. King Charles responded by issuing a gag order over Parliament, no further debate of any kind. In the House of Commons, speakers would walk up to the pulpit. They would try to speak and then just weep. That is until Nathaniel Rich rose and said that they could not remain silent, that they had a duty to speak. He insisted, in fact, that they do speak. And he said to his fellows, We must speak now, or forever hold our peace. The weight of the moment was on them. The king would dismiss Parliament and likely not call another. As Parliament rallied around their rights and duty, the king agreed to sign the Petition of Rights. He agreed that the law was sovereign. King Charles then told Parliament to reconvene in six months. A few days later, Once the members of Parliament had scattered themselves back to their countryside estates, King Charles went on the offense against Parliament. He ordered that the petition of right and his agreement to it be made waste paper, replacing it with his first response to Parliament's request for rights. The king is sovereign above all laws. 
Then he claimed the right of tonnage and poundage without Parliament's approval, and then went on to speak for Parliament, saying that Parliament neither meant to nor could hurt the king's right as the sovereign ruler of England. Translation, even if Parliament really intended to limit my power, they could not. Because I said they could not feel that way or act that way. King Charles then vented his anger of this rebuke from his subjects as his father had. He channeled his vengeance through the Church of England. He started purging moderates, dissenters of any kind, specifically targeting the Puritans who made up the majority of the House of Commons that had so embarrassed him. The king somehow had still hoped those six months would lead to compromise, that Parliament would cool off and remember their role. When Parliament reconvened six months later, it was in a foul mood. Immediately protesting the king's destruction of the petition of rights which he had signed himself. But the religious issue quickly became the focus of the animosity in Parliament. They saw the king's new involvement in the Church of England as a thinly veiled attempt to turn the country Catholic. The public had long seen the king acting to further European Catholicism, but now the House of Commons saw this conspiracy directly at work in the king's actions. Religion was to be the main and only business this Parliament would hear. When King Charles sent men to dismiss Parliament, the House of Lords would ignore this request and hold those men hostage until they could finish their work. They passed edicts that anyone spreading popery would be subject to capital punishment. Anyone taking tonnage and poundage not granted by Parliament was also a capital enemy. In reaction, King Charles dissolved Parliament. King Charles then appointed multiple high-ranking Catholics inside of his government. This infuriated the countryside, which led to radical Puritans smashing stained-glass windows, elaborately decorated crosses, and churches across the countryside. The Church of England viewed this damage as treasonous acts, and would use this to crack down on Puritans and anyone else not using the right preachings, using the right scripture, without the right lessons, out of the right Bible, praying the right way. It is hard for us to remember this level of persecution. The Church of England didn't ask nicely or give you a ticket. The Church of England would punish those that broke their vision of Christianity with different punishments ranging from whippings, brandings, a visit to the pillory, where they would beat you with the intent of permanently scarring your face, and of course, execution in some horrific, dismembering way. The government would turn its spy organization on the parishioners of the church, searching for anyone that the church leaders deemed problematic. No member of a congregation could know if their fellow congregants were spying on them, reporting back to the Church of England of any failings, if their attention in church wasn't correct, if they weren't reading the Book of Common Prayers enough, and if they interpreted the Bible in the right way. To survive, the Puritans had become a church within the church. Some fled for the possibility of a new Israel in America. Many would stay in England, where they would become part of a potent rage that would spark into the English Civil War. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.